Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered together in your name to glorify you, to praise you, to praise your Son for what he has done for us. We pray that as we continue to worship under your word now, that you would speak to us, help us to see your truth, and help us to respond to you appropriately. Help us to continue to exalt your name, even as we listen and respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1538, the Protestant reformer John Calvin was exiled out of the city of Geneva, where he had been pastoring and preaching his way through the Psalms. He was given three days' notice to vacate the city or else face dire consequences. In 1531, three years later, the city invited and welcomed him back with open arms. And on the first Sunday when he returned, he opened his Bible to preach and picked up in the very next verse in Psalms where he had been before he'd been interrupted. In essence, after a three-year break going, now, where were we? I felt a bit like that this week and last as I picked up the sermon series I began three years ago before we were interrupted. Not by exile, of course, but by COVID. But why would I pick this one back up after so long a break? Haven't we moved on since then? Well, for one reason, there were things that I prepared to preach on then that I had to leave unsaid at the time. But more importantly, we were talking about worshiping God, which is the most important part of our mission as a church, why we exist. And worship is something that we should never, ever move on from. If we were to, we might as well call it a day and close our doors for good. These two weeks, though, I decided to do a a thorough review of what we covered back in 2020, as all of you are either new to Calvary over those last three years, or you've forgotten what was said, and that's okay. So last Sunday, we talked about how the gospel is the foundation for our worship, how Jesus makes us able to worship. He makes worship knowable, possible, desirable through his death and rising again. And then we saw how the word of God should be what shapes every aspect of our worship, dwelling richly in us. And finally, how we need to be worshiping in community, focus on both God and each other as we worship. I'll begin today by asking, what do you feel is the greatest obstacle in your life to worshiping God? What's the greatest obstacle? Maybe you would say it's the the challenges of getting to church each week with busy schedules, work shifts, sicknesses, or simply sleeping in. Or you might say it's uncooperative family members. They're the big obstacle. I'm preaching to myself here. Today was rough. (laughs) 
Maybe it's getting little kids dressed and, and fed and in the car or, or fighting with a loved one, which seriously messes with your mood before worship. Or you might say the biggest hindrances to you worshiping is just distraction. So with ringing phones, crying babies, technical difficulties, thinking about the playoffs. <laughs> or you might say that a, a huge obstacle is maybe anxiety or depression, which makes you not want to engage much if you can muster showing up at all. Now, while all these are indeed challenges, I'd suggest that none of them are your biggest obstacle. The most significant obstacle for every one of us is found in our own hearts. See, there is a, a battle raging inside of each of our hearts over worship. Will we praise the Lord, our Creator? Will we thank Him? Will we sing? Will we pray? Will we mean it? And all the while, our hearts are what Calvin coins idol factories, <laughs> churning out rival ultimate affections or alternate gods. Whenever we love or serve anything more than God, that's idolatry. So the question that rages daily really is, who or what will we love most? Who or what has our heart? Now, if you don't see this as a big issue, listen to these words from Jesus as he quoted from Isaiah the prophet. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now, that's a striking indictment, isn't it? He's saying that if our hearts are far from God, it completely devalues our worship, makes it in vain. Now, I don't know about you, but I desperately want to avoid that ever being true of me. I don't want to, to give vain lip service to God. I want to give him true heart worship, which then moves my lips and my voice and more to rightfully honor God. Today, I want to show you three different Bible passages, which will hopefully inspire this true heart worship in all of us today. So let's first open up together to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. As you turn there, remember that we defined worship as coming before God into his presence, which through Jesus is everywhere now, and responding to him, his person and his works, in order to glorify him. Much of Psalms, which was the people of Israel's worship songbook, had this goal. They gave voice to people as they came together to glorify God by responding to him, either who he was or what he had done. However, as, as those scary words from Jesus that I quoted a moment ago allude to, using our voices to, to sing, pray, or speak praise is the wrong starting place for worship. True, biblical, God-pleasing worship always begins in our hearts. 
And maybe you could recall a worship leader sometime urging you to, to sing it from your heart. Right motives, wrong method. Because right? we can't just conjure up heart worship on the spot. Our hearts have to be filled with something first, which then pours out as praise. I believe that our hearts must be filled with awe and love for the Lord. Like we should be saying, see who God is first. And as we see his goodness and his greatness, we will instinctually worship from our hearts. Look at the way Psalm 111 starts. It says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So stop there for now. The the psalmist is making this personal commitment right away. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the congregation. But the basis for that commitment is who God is. Praise the Lord. And then what God has done that merits his thanks. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. In other words, he primarily focuses first on God's worth and deservedness. His worthiness. He doesn't say something like, I'm going to give thanks to God with my whole heart, so I'm going to pursue emotional experiences that really move me. Or I'll turn the music up louder. Or sing with more gusto. Or, or fire up the fog machines. Or you know, I'll close my eyes and focus really hard on how I really should feel right now. No, he sings. He sings, I'll worship with my whole heart. Great are God's works. Don't you see what God has done? He doesn't start with our work. He starts with God's worth and God's works. And the big idea is that God deserves worship from our whole hearts. God is worthy of this. God deserves worship from our whole hearts. Now, just in case you're confused, I'm not talking about our physical blood-pumping hearts. When the Bible says heart, It's usually talking about our invisible spiritual heart, which is the the moral, emotional, volitional, spiritual center of our being. So when it says to worship or give thanks with a whole heart, it means to worship with our entire inner beings, our minds, our emotions, our motives, our affections. This isn't meant to downplay our our physical bodies, our outward selves. We are fully embodied people. And if we worship with our whole heart, it will inevitably lead to physical expression of some kind. But for now, we're focusing on the inside as that's what controls what's on the outside. The famous hymn writer Isaac Watts once said, The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship if there be no inward adoration, if no devout affection be employed therein. It is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. 
Really, worship is an expression of the great commandment to love God with all we are. In Mark 12, a scribe asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? And you all know what Jesus answered, right? He said, the most important one, the one that that matters more than anything, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he added love of neighbor as the second most important as well. But then the scribe responded to him, saying, yes, you're right, Jesus. Listen to what he said. To love the Lord with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus told him, you've answered wisely. In other words, Jesus affirms his answer, says this was a good, correct answer. So notice, to love God with all our heart is greater than what? than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was the center of Israel's worship. In other words, what's going on in the center of our beings, our love for the Lord is more important than all the outward shows or duties that we can perform. You might wonder, well, if this is so vital then how do we ensure we're using our whole hearts? Let's not make this more complicated than it needs to be. Do you love Jesus? Do you you know that you love Jesus? Do you feel an affection for him? Does God have your whole heart? And if so, Does it come out of you? On the other hand, if he doesn't have your whole heart, what's keeping him from having it all today? The opposite of a whole heart isn't an empty heart. It's a half heart or a divided heart. So what do you love as much or more than you love the Lord? What do you think about most, or talk about most, or talk up most? What do you spend the most time on, or spend the most money on? What do you daydream about most? What do you fear losing most? In likelihood, those are your go-to idols, which we need to demote in our hearts. They may even be good things, likely are, good loves, but they must not rival God. Now, I'm never going to worship God with my whole heart just because the Bible scolds me about idolatry. No, the only way that I'll worship God wholeheartedly is being captivated by his superior beauty. He is greater than all this. I have to see how much greater God is than anything else I could love or that I do love. And I think the rest of Psalm 111 attempts to show us a glimpse of this, of God's superiority. And we see it in two ways. First, 
God deserves wholehearted worship as we give thanks for his great works. So as we see his great works, we see his superiority. In verse 1 again it says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. What should God's people give thanks to God for? Keep reading. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, the Lord's works refer to both what he's made and what he's done. You could say creation and action. And this mentions two things that we should do with God's works. Delight in them and study them. Would you say that you delight in God's works? Do you enjoy what he's made? Do you appreciate what he's done? If so, are you drawn to study his works? To look at them more closely? Really, those are things that we seek to do every Sunday as we gather to worship. To delight in his works and study his works. Can you answer the question today? What works has God done for you? Some of you might think of a few things really quickly. Others of you might draw a blank. But if we're truly thankful, shouldn't these works just be constantly on the tips of our tongues? And shouldn't we hardly be able to hold back talking about what God has done for us? If that's not the case, it just shows there's a lot of room to grow here in studying the works of God. And it should be a delight to do so. Let's just read the rest of the, or most of the psalm here. It says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Just to, to give you a starter list of the wondrous works of the Lord, but you see some of them here, but we can thank God for these things. Think of how he created everything from nothing and how spectacular creation can be. Think of how he created us wonderfully designing and, and forming each one of us. Think about how he patiently puts up with us, even as we stray far from him. Think of how he forgives us, washes us, purifies us, transforms our hearts. 
Think of how he has saved and redeemed his people over and over again. And we read the scripture with, he does it in so many different ways with arcs and with split seas and returns from exile. And then, of, of course, most vividly with the cross. Think about how he has supernaturally intervened over the centuries. Like in Jesus' miracles, countless other times, especially in Jesus' history-altering, life-changing resurrection from the dead. It's a work of the Lord. Think about how he has saved you. Because your salvation is a miracle. And don't you forget it. Think about how he faithfully provides for our needs on a daily basis. Think about how he's gone far beyond mere necessities and blessed our lives abundantly. Think about how he upholds the universe, sustaining every molecule. And then thank the Lord. Praise him. We need to remember all that God has done because we get so preoccupied with what we've done instead. How our weeks have gone. What we've accomplished lately. What we're trying to do today or tomorrow. Our goals over the next year. And that's a, a perfect recipe for pride or despair or both. Not humble thankfulness. So let us remember and praise God that he'll actually help us remember. As it said in verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So, God deserves our worship as we, you could say, ponder anew and give thanks for what he has done. But, that's arguably not the most significant reason he deserves our wholehearted worship. More foundationally, God deserves worship from our whole hearts as we are awed by who he is. As we are awed by who he really is. Himself. I love how the, the person writing this psalm was just listing out reasons that God is praiseworthy and then eventually, he can't hold it in anymore, and he just bursts into praise. Do you see that? Verse 9, he has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In verse 10, all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Can't help but praise him. And when we begin... To understand how holy God is and how when we start to grasp how awesome he is, the only appropriate response is awe and amazement. For God to be holy means that he is perfect, pure, righteous, transcendent, holy other than us. For God to be awesome means that he's, he's worthy of awe. It should be obvious by now. When we 
truly grasp who God is. Worship of him should never be boring. There is no limit to his holiness, love, and glory. There is no end to his justice, mercy, and grace. And there is no comparison to his righteousness, wisdom, and power. In her book, None Like Him, Jen Wilkin tells the story of visiting Mere Woods in California, which has these enormous redwood trees that have been growing for nearly a thousand years now. I've been there, and the trees are just jaw-dropping. But she says that, that she'll never forget another sight that she saw as she walked through those woods. Two parents were walking along and enjoying the scenery around them while their son was playing a game on an iPad. And it was this, just a striking image of how self-absorbed we can be. Like, that's really all of us, not just that little kid. Like, instead of standing in awe, she goes on to say that research shows that when humans experience awe, wonderment at Redwoods or Rainbows, Rembrandt or Rachmaninoff, we become less individualistic, less self-focused, less materialistic, and more connected to those around us. In marveling at something greater than ourselves, we become more able to reach out to others. At first, this seems counterintuitive, but on closer examination, it begins to sound a lot like the Great Commandments. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Marvel at someone greater than yourself, and love of neighbor, reach out to others. Awe helps us worry less about self-worth by turning our eyes first toward God, then toward others. It also helps establish our self-worth in the best possible way. We understand both our insignificance within creation and our significance to our Creator, But just like a child on an iPad at the foot of an 800-year-old redwood, we can miss majesty when it is right in front of us. So are we missing what's right in front of us? Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding His praise endures forever. Fearing God is the the start of becoming truly wise. It's the start of, of true wholehearted worship as well. Your whole heart will not be engaged until you catch glimpses of your holy God. When we do catch those glimpses, though, Wow. You can say our God is an awesome God. But we wonder if our hearts are what really matter in worship, far more than what we say, then why bother with words at all? Why praise? Why sing? Why pray? Why verbalize? I mean, outside of the fact that 
praise the Lord or sing to the Lord is either the most or second most repeated command in the entire Bible. So, besides sheer obedience to God's commands, why should we worship with our voices? The short answer can be found in Jesus' words in Luke 6, that out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This means that if your mouth is not verbalizing praise to God, praise is very likely not in your heart to begin with. Oh, you can sing and praise without your heart being engaged, sure. That's why we started there with our hearts. But it doesn't go the other way around. You cannot have a heart full of praise and love for God and not have that come out of you. And so, God not only deserves worship from our hearts, but also God deserves worship from our lifted voices. God deserves worship from our lifted voices. And to see this, I'm going to have you flip over with me now to another psalm, to Psalm 28. It's just a handful of pages to Psalm 28. This is just one of hundreds of psalms I could have used for this. But follow along as you get there. First couple verses. This is David singing this one. He says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Now, in those verses, can you see all the references to either speaking or hearing? Right? To you, I call. Be not deaf or silent. Hear the voice of my pleas. I cry to you. There's obviously this communication going on between David and the Lord. And notice that the communication wasn't meant to just be this one-sided conversation either. David is, is pleading with God for him to respond, for him to hear, and for him to speak. Which we know that God was actually doing at that very moment. If you look down to verse 6, as David's praise for a while, he says, that blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. He knows that God heard. And he, God had already spoken in the past to him, and he would do so again, not to mention that ironically God was speaking through David right then as well. God is never actually deaf or silent to us. We may feel like he doesn't hear us at times. But he does. And even when we don't hear him speaking back to us, the fact of the matter is, he spoke first. Like, usually we're the ones not responding to his voice, not the other way around. I think this psalm hints at something about why we should use our voices to worship God. And that's that God deserves worship from our lifted voices as a reflection of who he is. 
as a reflection of who he is. This is who he's made us to be. Worship is our response to him, right? And it's our response to what he has said and what he has done. God is not silent, deaf, or inactive, and thus neither should we be in response. We were created in the image of God. We were meant to reflect him. And God is a speaking, relational, communicating God. On a similar note, he's also a singing God. Did you know that? The prophet Zephaniah, right after telling Pete, God's people to, to sing aloud, shout, and rejoice, says this about God. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, there are many ways to worship the Lord, of course. Many verbal ways at that. We can pray out loud, read scripture out loud, express public thanks to God, make spoken exclamations of praise like amen and hallelujah or praise the Lord. But while we always run the risk of equating worship with singing alone, there have to be reasons why the predominant way to worship in Scripture is through song. It's by far the most predominant way. Songwriters Keith and Kristen Getty explain that we are a singing people because it is how God has created us. It's what we do. We are all singers. We may not all be very good singers, but we are all created to be singers nonetheless. We are created to sing because it leads us joyfully to the great singer, creator of the heavens and the earth. Our singing should sound like him, look like him, and lead our hearts to him. By the way, this summer in July and August, there's going to be a special worship-focused small group, and that's going to be studying some a book by Keith and Kristen Getty that is excellent together. And if you're intrigued by this topic at all, you can sign up for that even now online. But so the, so the fact that that God is a speaking God should inspire us to respond to Him with our voices raised. But why should we sing as opposed to just speaking? Like David says in verse 7 here, he says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults, there's the heart side, and with my song I give thanks to him. What sets singing apart from speaking? Why use music? Exercise our vocal cords. Well, there's something about music that engages more than just our mouths. Right? There, there's something about music that grabs our attention, that informs our minds, that moves our emotions, that excites our spirits, and that assists our memory. Like I, I know that all of us could quote vastly more song lyrics than Bible verses. Why is that? 
It's because there's an inherent power in music to, to move us in certain ways and to change us and mold us. More than, so much more than our vocal box is engaged when we sing praise. God has formed us, formed our hearts to be moved by singing. And in order to move our hearts, he captures our hearts in the first place. And that gives us our final point for today, that God deserves worship from our lifted voices as an expression of our changed hearts. This is an expression of our changed hearts. I don't believe that we can have changed hearts and not sing. I just don't. You can't help it. Once we've been heard and thus saved, it should automatically lead to thankful praise, as it does for David here. Verse 6 again. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And I'll add, if worshiping with our voice is an expression of our changed hearts, this is truer than ever for us who have been saved by Jesus. Have you received mercy from God? Has your heart been cleansed by him? Have your sins been washed away? Have you been forgiven? Has God changed your heart to actually want him, to want his ways? Has God paid attention to your pathetic little voice? He answered your prayers, has become your strength and shield, your helper, your saving refuge, your shepherd. If so, have you noticed? Are you thankful? And have you told them so? God knows your heart anyway, but he wants to hear it from you. Psalm 116 sings, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclines his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. That psalm goes on to ask, what shall I render to the Lord? What shall I give back to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. So what can we do to give back to the Lord for all he's done to us? It says praise him, call on his name, offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Sounds similar to what it says in the New Testament in Hebrews 13, that through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
that we always praise whatever delights us, right? Whether from family members to sports teams to TV shows to good food. I bet you can't go a week, even a day, without praising something. How much more does Jesus deserve our continual praise and gratitude? Praise reminds us of of how much greater he is than anything else, and it points others to the only place that they're going to find such greatness and such goodness. Before we end, please turn over to Romans 15 with me. Romans 15. And in this chapter, Paul shows that our singing together is an expression of our unity in Christ. In other words, as Jesus has changed our hearts and he's brought us together into one family, we now sing in order to glorify God. It says this in Romans 15, starting in verse 5. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if God has granted you and me harmony with each other through Jesus, if he's joined our hearts together, then we ought to join our voices together to glorify God. It says with one voice, Some of you may be slightly mortified by this part of the sermon. Maybe you don't really sing. So you maybe feel guilty about that. If that's you, don't just try to muster up some extra enthusiasm to sing. Go to Jesus and ask him to change your heart. And let that lead you to sing. Others of you maybe don't feel comfortable singing. Or you, don't, you feel you can't sing. But you can. Everyone can sing in some way. It's like in the, the kids' movie Ratatouille. Gusteau saying, anyone can cook. I don't know about that. I'm not actually sure everyone is capable of cooking. <laughs> but... Anyone can sing. Babies can sing. Kids sing. Seniors can sing. The disabled, like whoever you are, like maybe you can't sing well or carry a tune, but guess what commands you will never find in the Bible? Sing the correct notes. <laughs> or stay on pitch. Or don't make mistakes. You won't find it. And this is where it goes back to our hearts. If you love the Lord, he wants to hear your heart. He cares more about a tone-deaf person annoyingly trying to express their praise than a professionally trained musician singing perfectly for the wrong reasons. So sing anyway. 
and sing with a, a passion that springs from a heart that's been changed. I agree with the Gettys who claim that it is hard, impossible in fact, to sing what you are excited about in your spirit and grateful for in your heart in a way that is tepid, tentative, and withdrawn. Deeply felt thankfulness produces a sound from our voices that is robust and enthusiastic. As we obey the command to sing, we are, or should be, unleashing a congregational sound of conviction. If we aren't, our children or visitors looking on have every right to wonder if, we are, if what we are singing is truly important to us. In this sense, our singing betrays the truth about us, for better and for worse. And some of you still might think, like, what if I don't enjoy it? I don't want to sing. And what I'd say is, if for no other reason, sing out of obedience to God. For no other reason. And, and out of a desire to glorify and please him. Like, this is a biblical command. However, I also believe that this can be and can grow into something that's very desirable. If, if Christ and the gospel are true, then it must, it, it will become desirable to his people to praise God for it. Jared Wilson even claims that if Christ is true, then boredom is a sin. That's boredom with Christ specifically. He says Christ is endlessly absorbing, dazzlingly multifaceted. Like he can't be boring. Only we can. The fault's with us, not with him. And whether or not we desire to open our mouths and praise moment by moment, I believe every believer should have a spirit-given desire to glorify God through Christ. And the ultimate goal of unified vocal praise is God's glory. That's why we do this. As it said there in verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our welcoming one another within the church also has this goal. The next verse, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. And this motive even underlies the gospel as a whole. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. So in other words, Christ came to earth. He came to earth to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So do you follow the trait of thought there? This says that, that Jesus came in order to fulfill God's promises, but also to secure glory for God from us. Just think about that. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you and I would glorify God. Our worship is that important. God is that deserving of all of our praise. 
So I urge you all, urge us all to worship God with our hearts and with our voices. To open your mouth, to sing louder, to sing more often, to, to literally sing your heart out. And may the Lord grant us the harmony we need to keep on singing until he returns. Because we cannot say enough or sing enough to tell of how deserving he is. Psalm 105 directs us, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Amen. Father, we pray that you would captivate our hearts with your glory above all else today. That you would be the chief love of our hearts. And help that overflow. God, we pray that you would do the work in our hearts that we cannot do ourselves, even in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.